time for swordplay. Alex, an estimated 180,000 people were in attendance for the Pope's visit to the Arabian Peninsula. It's the first time ever a Pope has visited in Islamic history. Did you make the pilgrimage? Nick, I wish. You know, I would go just to see the Pope Mobile. Have you seen this thing? This is like a five-ton cart with three-inch bulletproof glass windows. I mean, it's like a payday loan shop on wheels. It's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. Incredible. Pope Mobile. Pope has loan shark. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> this is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Colossians chapter 2, actually we're going to dig back into the last uh, several verses of chapter 1 and then roll into chapter 2. Yeah, we couldn't even finish all of chapter 1, even with two parts. So if you're still hanging with us, go back, look over chapter 1, read chapter 2, read all of Colossians if you have time, read Ephesians and Colossians together. Nick, let's jump into the text here. Where are we at? Uh, We're in chapter 1 and verse 24, where Paul is talking about how he rejoices in his sufferings for the sake of the Colossians. Um, Let's talk about why is it um, for the Colossians' sake that Paul rejoices in his sufferings? That's a good question, Nick. You know, it's one thing to rejoice in suffering. Verses like that abound in the New Testament that talk about Christian suffering. But the curious part to me is why Paul says it's for their sake. Uh, For there in the Greek is huper. It means on behalf of. And I tell you what, I'm intrigued by an idea from our Catholic friends called victim souls. Victim souls. Uh, Victim souls are those who seem to undergo an abnormal amount of suffering as a Christian, and they look at that and willingly offer that up in a spiritual sense. They offer up that suffering as a spiritual sacrifice to God. Now, the suffering that they undergo, it's not viewed as something added to Christ's um, redemptive work on the cross, but the victim soul sees their suffering as something to be used by God, uh, also not necessarily caused by God, but They offer it to be used by God for the good of others, uh, even if you're unsure of how God will accomplish that end. What do you think, Nick? That's interesting, uh, um, that concept, and then Paul rejoicing in that. um, I just come alongside and and add um, a couple things. One, um, attitudinally, Paul is setting an example for these Christians and for all Christians um, in suffering with joy. Um, and then the, the second thing is that his ministry to the Gentiles partly included trying to convince Jews that Gentiles are part of the covenant people, and that right. sometimes brought him grief, uh, brought him persecution, brought him suffering. Yes. But that worthy cause is not one to be ashamed of, um, but rather he rejoices in that. So That's good. We're going to stay in verse 24 because Paul talks about how his sufferings uh, for your sake in my flesh. He talks about his flesh. Paul uh, Paul, uh, talks about in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking. And we'll talk about the lacking part here. But let's talk about the flesh first of all. Why does Paul mention his flesh? 
Well, I think Paul has in mind his own physical bodily harm that has been caused to him by preaching the gospel. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, especially the second half of the chapter, you'll get a summary of Paul's hardships and the beatings and things that happened to him along the way on his missionary journeys. And there are two things to remember about this verse and this phrase about the flesh. Number one, flesh is often contextually defined. So here it may mean Paul's physical body, but later in another verse, as we'll see, it may mean something else. Right. And there's also overlap. So it's not always the same meaning. That's one thing to remember. Number two, Paul seems to be contrasting the suffering he has undergone in his body for the gospel over and against the false teachers or the Jewish mystics that he's battling in the Colossian church. Those people, they apparently participate in self-abasement or asceticism or harsh treatment of the body. And those are what his opponents do to their own bodies. But notice the key difference. Paul's physical pain is the consequence of faithful preaching. But his enemies' physical pain is the consequence of their own rituals. And perhaps in those rituals, that's one way they're trying to induce some sort of vision or experience. But I ask you, and I think Paul is asking the Colossians, which is more Christ-like? And I think the answer would be clear. Well, also in verse 24, we have this curious phrase about filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, Nick, how could Paul fill up Christ's afflictions? How is Christ lacking affliction? That seems um, counterintuitive. What do you think, Nick? There's a few different ways that uh, this phrase has been understood, interpreted. Um, One, there are some who say that Paul um, is essentially saying that Christians need to suffer in order to somehow complete their atonement. Okay, so that, that's a view. That's one view. I don't think that's right. But um, second, there are some who read here a, you know, a mystical experience. Um, when Christians suffer, they are participating with Christ's suffering, even his suffering on the cross. There's some kind of mystical union that's taking place there. Uh, Third, some read this as Paul speaking of their entrance into the consummation of the kingdom. In other words, this has a view toward the end time, an eschatological view for the big word there. But um, it's it's akin to what Paul talks about in uh, Acts chapter 14 and verse 22, how suffering would give way to glory, and they had to suffer so many tribulations in order to enter into the kingdom. So there's a few different options there. Hmm. Um, What I know is, just like I said with that first option, this cannot mean that Christ's sacrifice is somehow insufficient in atoning for sin, kind of like what you mentioned earlier. Sure. Um, uh, You you said that earlier. So Jesus' death on the cross, it was complete. Nothing lacking. Paid in full is the last thing he says before he gives up the ghost. Um, So he, he... when he died on the cross, it, our sin debt was paid in full. So Paul seems to be referring to his suffering to bring the gospel to people who had not heard it, and it was it's as if there are sufferings which Christ through the church is to endure, which is what Paul is filling up. Hmm. Um, it's uh, This is actually 
um, a secondary view of the mystical view that I mentioned, option number two earlier. And it, it, you have example of this in the book of Acts also, Acts uh, chapter 9, where Paul is asked by the Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, he was persecuting the church, which was tantamount to persecuting Christ. So hmm. uh, that's the connection there. Uh, what say you, Alex? Yeah, I really like that option that you gave, the secondary view under the mystical view. Um, I think that pairs well with the idea of victim souls uh, that I previously mentioned. And like you said, and just to reiterate, to be clear for our audience, Christ's affliction for atonement is complete. But the affliction for the spreading of the gospel and expanding God's kingdom is still incomplete, and it will be until all of Christ's enemies have been made a footstool for, for his feet. Good catch there with the, um, why are you persecuting me? Jesus talking to Paul, who was persecuting the church. Right. Now, we, do, uh, we each do our part in suffering for the cause of Christ. And there are some, like Paul, who may have had a bigger share in suffering than perhaps other people had. And perhaps in Paul's mind, that's what he means by suffering on their behalf. In Ephesians 3.13, cross-referencing this, Paul says that his tribulations are on their behalf for their glory. And so don't lose heart. Don't look at this as something... Um, that's bad or that we're losing or anything like that. Paul says, no, no, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing it on your behalf. It's so you don't, so you don't have to. And that has a certain element of beauty there that I, that I like. Very new way of thinking. I hadn't thought of it from that perspective before. Well, Nick, in verse 26, we have something called the mystery. Right. The mystery. And he says, the mystery was hidden in past ages and generations. Nick, what is the mystery, and how was it hidden? You know, there's so many um, so many things we're going to cover today. Each one of those things could be a tough text, and I think this could be one of them. Hmm. Um, I'm persuaded that this is Paul, and he, he'll do this again and again, as we'll see, uh, especially when we hit chapter 2. Paul is... He's taken swipes um, intentionally at his uh, Gnostic opponents. They reveled in their mysteries. Uh, they were absorbed in trying to seek out secret knowledge. And so Paul says, listen, there's just one mystery, and it's tied up in Christ. Uh, his life, death, on resurrection, ongoing ministry— through and for the church, and that's, by the way, how the mystery is revealed is through the church. Right. So the secret knowledge of God's purpose in Christ has been and is now being revealed through the church. And this does kind of bleed into verse 27, because he talks about uh, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, um, coupled with uh, the potential parallel passage over in Ephesians chapter 3. I think we can even tighten the focus of the mystery as Jew and Gentile reconciled into one body, which is the church, and that one body is reconciled to God through Christ and the cross. I think that yes. is a good definition there for what Paul is talking about when he talks about mystery. 
what do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think that was well said in the audience. Let that be in the forefront of your mind as we go through the rest of the chapter. Now, I mentioned in previous podcasts that I do like to use Ephesians as a filter for Colossians, and I come to the same conclusion as you, Nick. Uh, You made allusion to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, does say specifically, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the body, and partakers of the promise of Christ through the gospel. Right. And I think uh, this was a shot at the Jewish elitism and the anti-Gentile sentiment that perhaps was floating around in there. Um, maybe by those pre-Gnostic or Jewish mystic groups. A lot of this overlaps. One question that led to another question was, why was that a mystery? Why was the, the Gentile being a fellow heir? Why was that a mystery? Why would God have to hide that? Why not just spell it out more clearly in prophetic passages, make it more understandable? And I think that it's because of who the Gentiles were under, according to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19, which says that God gave the nations over to worship the sun, moon, and the stars. That's stock language for the gods. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9 says that when God divided up the nations, he divided them according to the number of the sons of God. Septuagint says the angels of God. And Psalm chapter 82 talks about God judging the other gods for being evil, and the end result is their destruction. Uh, these are real evil beings that were over the other nations. Now, First Peter chapter 1, verses 11 through 12 says that the prophets of the Old Testament, they wanted to know more clearly about their own messianic prophecies, but it wasn't for them to know. And then it says, even the angels longed to look into these things. It's a curious phrase, because I don't think those were good angels longing to look into these things. I think those were fallen angels, and that these evil beings, the fallen angels, are the ones over the other nations. And so I think God had to hide the gospel in a mystery, because had these spiritual beings, the rulers of this age, had they known, then 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8 says that they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory because it was signing their own death sentence. So that's kind of some more backdrop to the mystery and why was it made hidden. Any thoughts, Nick? No, that's good stuff. Good stuff. Let's uh, go on to verse 27 proper. And Paul talks about how um, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of Glory. So you have several things going on here. Yes. Um, <clears throat> one, we want to talk about how is Christ in them, and second, what are the riches and the hope of glory that Paul's Paul speaks of here? Well, again, the parallel passage for this section is Ephesians chapter three, uh, verses eight through ten. Now, specifically verses ten and eleven, it says that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And uh, you you mentioned that earlier, so again, we're going to keep hitting on this. God carried out this purpose in Christ. So Christ is in you, is what he says in Colossians verse 27. Christ in you, by the way, you is plural. It's he's in y'all. He's in all y'all. <laughs> and so just to bring in the collective mindset here, not to be too individualistic. So Christ is in all of you because all of you are his body, the church. 
So our very existence as Gentiles now under the reign of Christ and the perpetual work of bringing all nations into the kingdom of God, this is God's way of sticking it to those evil beings, slapping them in the face and saying, I win. So it's no wonder uh, Paul will say later on that he made a public display out of the rulers and authorities when he disarmed them. So the riches and the hope of glory, I think it's just that, glory meaning our glorification, the redemption of our bodies, the revealing of the true sons of God at the resurrection. Uh, that's a reference to Romans eight nineteen. Much to the chagrin of the old sons of God from Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 through 9. So you may remember on previous podcasts, still hanging on to that thread, finding the puzzle pieces here that point to our exaltation in the heavenly realms and the um, the humbling of the, the rebellious evil spirits in the heavenly realms. Nick, what do you think? You uh, made a good connection there with Ephesians 3, um, verses 8 through 11. Um, you can stay in that chapter, go a little bit further, um, and I believe you see how Christ was in them and also how he's in us. I think it's the same way, and it has to do with the Holy Spirit. We, sure. uh, according to Ephesians three sixteen and 17, we are strengthened with power by the Spirit so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Uh, so the Holy Spirit gets in there as well, and I like the, the hope of glory. Yeah, that hope is the confident expectation of our glorification one day. So, Very good. Well, Nick, in verse 28... It says that we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Now, Nick, uh, the word admonish here, let's talk about that. What does it mean to admonish? To admonish someone is to confront with the intent of changing their attitude or their actions. Uh, In fact, the word that's used here is uh, where uh, nuthetic therapy gets its name, Um, and that uh, has to do with the the practice of putting people in mind of the needful corrections to their thinking so that uh, they make the necessary corrective behavioral changes. You can see Jay Adams, who is kind of a leading, leading light and champion um, of nuthetic therapy uh, when it comes to, to counseling and things like that. But uh, uh, what about, uh, what do you say, Alex? What do you think about admonish? Yeah, I think what you said is good. The Greek there is nuthateo, and it has this compound of two words, nous, which means your mind, and tethetis, which means to cast upon. And so when you're admonishing, you're casting upon someone's mind, you're appealing to their mind. And it's not necessarily a harsh word, although it does kind of sound like a harsh word. It's actually a beautiful word in different contexts, like when Paul admonished with tears in Acts chapter 20, verse 31. Uh, he uses that word in 1 Corinthians 4.14. He says it's not to bring them shame, but to appeal to them as his beloved children. And in, uh, let's see, we, there's also a verse in like Ephesians, Colossians that say we admonish each other in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Right. Now, if admonish was a, a, a harsh or angry word, um, 
that would certainly change our worship music, wouldn't it? It would be a little more intense, I imagine. Uh, heavy metal acapella, is that possible? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, by the way, that is, uh, you're right on the money. Colossians 3.16 talks about how we admonish one another with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. So There we go. Let's talk about, um, well, we're still in verse 28. And um, moving on from the admonish idea, Paul talks about how he wants to present everyone mature in Christ. That's how my English Standard Version reads. Uh, I did a theme 2017 that was based on this verse here at church, preached through a bit of Colossians at that time. And I used the NIV, which says to present everyone perfect in Christ. So the hmm. theme was epic, E-P-I-C, everyone perfect in Christ. Ooh, I like that. What does it mean to be mature, perfect? I believe your translation says complete in Christ, Alex. Yeah, that word is uh, telios, and it means perfect. It means, but it doesn't mean sinless. It actually just means mature, uh, full grown. This is a, a word to talk about someone being an adult, or perhaps in a religious context, someone being initiated. And perhaps that sense of initiated. Uh, may be a shot at, uh, the again, the enemies in which Paul is addressing who are giving the Colossians some trouble. You know, in chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, we saw that um, because we've been reconciled in his fleshly body through death, um, we can now be presented before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach if indeed we continue firmly established steadfastly in the faith, not moved from the hope of the gospel. So about these uh, perhaps shot at the uh, enemies of Paul here, uh, t- tell us about that, Nick. What, do you, what else do you see? Yeah, um, and I, you're right on the money with uh, the idea of maturity, full-grown, all that. Uh, because in, in the Gnostic or pre-Gnostic uh, view, someone who was perfect was someone who had that secret knowledge, the elite who had had their ethereal experience, and you could come to them and they can share with you. In Christ and in the church, Paul says, believers, every believer knows the secret and is therefore fully mature. So why would you want to go and be part of the Gnostics who harbor and, you know, they're the gatekeepers of the secret knowledge and all that, when you can be a Christian and you have it already because you know Christ. So uh, that's, again, another, I think, intentional swipe at the Gnostics. You guys only have a select few elite who have had an ethereal experience. Let me tell you, every believer uh, knows the secret and is mature, and the the, the goal and the aim is to keep us uh, striving toward that. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, why go be an initiate of some mystery cult when you're already initiated in Christ? I mean, what higher initiation can there be? I think that's exactly what Paul is battling. Exactly. Verse 29, Paul talks about his work, his toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Alex, talk to us about the power that is working in Paul well, I think this is just dovetailing what you mentioned uh, moments ago about the Holy Spirit uh, in you, in the church, working in the church. This uh, power is indeed, I think, the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 3.16, strengthening you in your inner man. And though this is the power given to us through Christ, um, 
that power is not working instead of us. Paul is still striving. He's still striving to uh, work out his administration, the ministry given to him by Christ. But he knows that he's not working alone or by his own strength. And so what is this back and forth? Is it by our strength or by the strength of the Spirit working in us? And I like to think of this as divine cooperation. It's the working of God's power in the life of an imperfect person. And there's no, um, you can think of it as a harmonizing of our uh, will within doing and trying to carry out God's will. And there's no uh, putting numbers on it. I've heard people try to say, well, is it is it 10% you, 90% God? Is it 99.99% God and 1.11% you? Or is it 50-50 when you try to put numbers on that, you're really missing the picture here. The picture here is more of one of harmony and completeness in which uh, there is no distinction between uh, your efforts and then the power in which God is giving you to work out those efforts in working in his kingdom. There's divine cooperation. So no one zapped Paul with everything he needed. He was still striving. And uh, we'll, I believe we'll talk about that word striving here as well, agonizomai. Um, in the Greek, it is sometimes referred to as one who is contending in the gymnastic games. I mean, they are fighting, they are striving. Tell us more about that, Nick. How does Paul struggle on their behalf in chapter 2, verse 1? Yeah, and so just piggybacking on what you said, you know, especially that numbers game that we play, right? Um, it's kind of like the the arithmetic of heaven when it comes to the incarnation. We'll talk about that in a few verses, but it's not fifty fifty or seventy five twenty five or anything like that. It's a hundred one hundred. Yeah, God is doing all that He does, and we must do all that we can as well. And so Paul, in struggling on their behalf, um, you mentioned the original word. We get our English word agony from it, agonizomai, mm-hmm. agony. You can hear it there. This is what Epaphras did, Epaphras, what he does in prayer on behalf of the Colossians uh, over in chapter 4 and verse 12. Right. Is he struggled in prayer for them. And so I think in a similar way, in the same way, Paul in his prayer life, he struggled, wrestled on uh, behalf of these brethren. He was genuinely concerned about these the, these folks, these brethren, their souls. And so he wrestled in prayer just the same as Epaphras did, wrestled in prayer as well. So that's, I believe, one way in which Paul specifically struggled on their behalf was in his prayer life. I like that, and it challenges me to get more serious about my prayer life. I like what you said there. In verse 2, though, Nick, let's continue this uh, verse because the thought continues on, right? So verse 2 mentions uh, Christ being the true knowledge of God's mystery. How is that, Nick? How is Christ the true knowledge of God's mystery? Again, I, I see Paul, he does it again and again here, where he's saying to the Gnostics, the pre-Gnostics, hey, step off, all right? Again, those mystery religions were claiming to have special secret knowledge, which... If you wanted it, you got to come to them. You got to hmm. come to them for that knowledge. How so, convenient. yeah, um, for them, knowledge was the means of salvation. You want to be saved, you got to have knowledge. You got to know certain things. And so Paul says, yeah, uh, knowledge is important, sure, but 
true knowledge is actually in Christ. And therefore, salvation is not through a thing, it's through a person, it's through Christ, right? right. So salvation is through Christ. Um, and you know what? I look around today, there is still a strong emphasis on salvation through knowledge. I literally heard the other day an atheist was arguing that if every religious text and every science text disappeared from the earth in a thousand years, the science textbooks would be back, the religious texts, if they did come back, they would be radically different. I thought, uh-huh, you know, we can actually do an experiment here and dial the clock back a thousand years, just do a quick comparison of religious texts, specifically the Bible, and science texts, uh-huh. which are still around, right? The Bible's still around, and all those science texts have been radically changed. You mean uh, I can't transmutate lead into gold? Go figure. Oh, there right? goes my alchemy degree. <laughs> <That's> a, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's a, didn't you shut that school down? Um, or they shut it down because it just it doesn't work, right? Here's the thing. Knowledge is important so long as we keep it in the proper perspective. The treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ and in him alone. Uh, I think so, that's right, yeah. Yeah. Anything well, to add here? Yeah, I mean, I would just say let's remember that uh, Paul tells us how to attain this wealth, this wisdom, this knowledge in Christ, and it's by having our hearts encouraged and knit together in love. And so this practically does live itself out in our relationships with each other and our families and the church. Um, let's talk about verse 4 here. 2 verse 4 of Colossians says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Hmm. So people wanting to argue with Paul. Alex, why would somebody want to argue against what Paul is saying? Yeah, exactly. What would be the motivation here, I guess, is uh, what we're hinting at. And I think it's a power move. It's to say, okay, you can worship Christ and angels. Or you can get some wisdom in Christ but you also need visions. Or love and good deeds are okay, but you also need to keep these mystic rituals. I think it's to usurp Paul and to make his authority maybe just a mere stepping stone to the real authority that can only be experienced again by these elite. It reminds me a lot of actually modern-day New Age teachings that view Christianity as just a bunch of spiritual children playing in the sandbox, and they can't really handle the the real stuff found in other ancient religions and rituals and out-of-body experiences. And you know, Nick, it's really just the same lie going all the way back to the garden where Satan says, hey, you want true knowledge? Eat this fruit. You want to be like the gods? Eat this fruit. Yahweh doesn't really want you to ascend to higher levels. Let's just move on now. That's exactly what it's like. What do you say, Nick? No, that's that's good stuff. Um, you know, people still want to argue with Paul, or is it Deutero Paul? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's. Yeah. Um, we had that brief discussion last week about how some people don't think Paul wrote Colossians, and uh, so it's a Deutero Pauline letter. But I mean, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Back then, the ancients they would utilize lofty arguments with their soaring rhetoric. I think of. Tertullus, the lawyer in Acts 24 and verse 2, kind of the ringer they brought in in order to argue their case against Paul. Right. It's just it's going to continue. It's going to go on with the plausible arguments. But those plausible arguments, Paul says, they delude people. They're not good for us. Right. Nothing new under the sun. That's right. 
2 verse 5, Paul talks about being absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit. Alex, talk to us a bit about how how was Paul with them in spirit? I see this sort of in the same sense in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3, where Paul says he's absent in the body, but he's present in spirit, and that he's already judged this man as though he were present. I think that Paul mainly has prayer in mind when he uses this kind of language, that he can accomplish great things on their behalf or even in judgment when praying, like you mentioned in Colossians 4.12, Epaphras laboring, striving in his prayers for them as well. I think uh, prayer takes place in the spirit realm. It takes place in spirit. And so I I think that's sort of the power and uh, emphasis behind Paul's being in the spirit and connecting that with prayer. What do you think, Nick? Hmm, praying in the spirit. Have I read that anywhere before? Yeah, sound familiar? Uh, Yeah, into Jude. (laughs) You know, this is uh, this is typical for Paul. Um, you can also see First Thessalonians two seventeen. He says a similar thing there, uh, where he talks about being present in heart or in spirit. I mean, it it all sounds um, mystical, quite mystical when you think about it. the The metaphysical reality of of how this really works isn't really explored, which I think is a a fascinating thing. But uh, how about verse 7 here? Uh, Paul talks about being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Alex, what is the faith? Yeah, I think ESV says the faith. Um, that's right. Uh, my New American Standard says your faith. I don't mm. think that's quite right. It should be the faith in the Greek. So I think the faith is the thing believed. You know, it's not the act of believing, but it's the actual thing in which your belief is directed towards. And I think this is connected to how did they get that? How are they established in that? Um, it was given by instruction. So he says, just as you were instructed. Having said that, though, it's not easy to turn the faith into a systematic theology with no holes in it. Um, there's no single passage that spells out what the faith is for us. So in a sense, what we do as uh, Bible students, is we reverse engineer the scriptures by looking at the occasion and purpose of each letter and carefully examining how an apostle or a prophet utilizes what they have already been taught, what the audience has already been taught, in order to speak to their current problems. One thing to remember, though, is that Jude 1 verse 3 says that the faith, the faith, was once for all handed down to the saints. Once is the frequency. All is the scope of the audience, and the saints are the original recipients and safeguards. Nick, that ought to inform us then when it comes to modern-day prophets, when it comes to anyone who wants to add something to what we already have in our manuscripts. By the way, very, very good, abundant, reliable manuscripts. Usually someone will have to first undermine what we already have, calling our Bible incomplete, irreparably altered, changed by some Catholic conspiracy, uh, you know, lacking knowledge for the modern audience. Remember, all someone needs to do is undermine the source of authority in order to set themselves up as the new authority. Did God really say, uh, see the same old trick, nothing new under the sun? Well, Nick, 
Any thoughts? Well, and, yeah, let me just because uh, you have a couple different um, images that come through here. Rooted, which is a an agrarian term, right? The tree and the roots and all that, mm-hmm. and then built up and established are architectural terms. Um, and so Paul, he he just mixes those together, which is awesome. And uh, so you have this <laughs> this rooted building, as it were. Uh, in the faith. And the thing is, if we are rooted, if we are built up, if we are established in the faith, then when it comes to all the, and we're going to start talking about these false uh, philosophies and the human traditions and even the elemental spirits of the world, if we are rooted and established if in, in the true thing, then all the false stuff we're going to be able to readily identify and it's just going to slough off and fall away um, very quickly. And so that's why it's so important that we are... Um, firm in our faith. That's right. I'm almost thankful for the different trials and difficulties and false teachers that the first century church had to encounter, because by encountering them, we have handed down to us now Holy Spirit-inspired responses to all of these different um, heresies that still show up in different forms today, even even in our time of modernity. So, Nick, let's, let's keep going down then. We yep. have philosophy, empty deception, some say vain philosophy. In verse 8, Paul says, don't get caught up in this stuff. What did Paul mean, though, specifically by philosophy and empty deception, the tradition of men, the elementary principles of the world, Nick? Should I not pursue a philosophy degree? <laughs> uh Sure. Stay away from that. Um, <clears throat> I'm kidding. I got a brother-in-law who's got a philosophy degree. Anyway, he uh, when Paul is talking about this, he's talking about um, what we talked about last week, and that is the Colossian heresy of syncretism. Um, these are the false teachings, the uh, worldly precepts, the quasi-religious doctrines, all of which the pre-Gnostics, and also the Jewish mystics, they said you needed these in addition to Christ. Yeah, Christ is good, but you really need to sprinkle in all this other extra stuff. Hmm. But here's the math equation, ready? Christ plus anything else equals too much. All the asceticism, all the physical and external regulations, the eating and the drinking or not eating and drinking... All that stuff is too much. Um, so, and the the last phrase there, the elemental spirits of the world. So all the philosophy and the human traditions and the empty deceit are all according to, this is how I read it, the elemental spirits of the world. That's how my English standard reads it. And it's an interesting phrase. It could be talking about just basic, the basic religious teaching of Jews and Gentiles. That's a possibility. Um or it could be talking about the material parts of the universe. Eh, I don't know about that. I mean, it's a it's a possible interpretation, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. And the third is the spiritual powers or forces. And so, number one, number three, those are our best options here of basic religious teachings of Jews and Gentiles and the spiritual forces and the spiritual powers. And uh, it seems especially best contextually, especially given what Paul talks about not only here in Colossians but in Ephesians, to take this um, phrase of elemental spirits of the world, which is juxtaposed against Christ 
and to understand it as the spiritual bad guys, right. those malevolent spiritual beings. That's really the root of all of the the vain philosophy, the empty deception, um, and the human traditions. Right. Uh, what do you think, Alex? I vote number three: the yeah. the bad guys, the bad spiritual powers and forces, um, the doctrines of demons. Elementary principles here is the Greek stoicheion or stoicheion, and it means the heavenly bodies. It can also mean the elements or elemental spirits. It can also mean the fundamental principles. And so I'm actually going to show you how some of these blend together in the ancient Near East. So heavenly bodies, that's a word for talking about the um, stars, talking about the things in the skies. They point towards spiritual powers because the heavenly bodies, the stars in the sky, those stars in the Bible and in the ancient Near East are seen as living beings, as the gods, as angels. Uh, like we mentioned in Deuteronomy 4.19, God gave the other nations up to worship the sun, moon, and stars. Um, so Revelation chapter 1, you have again sort of this blending where the seven stars in Jesus' right hand are the seven angels of the seven churches. Now, the definition of stoikion as elements, that again sort of has this overlap, this blending with angels, because in the ancient Near East, in the Bible, in Second Temple literature, you have um, attrib- you have people attributing the, the forces of nature to being overseen and controlled by spiritual beings or angels, you know, depending on the religious context. In fact, you know, if that's the case, it kind of makes you think twice about Jesus calming the storm, right? Hmm. I think this fits. I think this fits the context of Colossians, uh, that these are the bad guys, these spiritual bad guys, and uh, especially, I mean, maybe specifically spiritual, like, evil angels, fallen angels, because we're going to get this mentioning of worshiping angels in verse 18. Right. So we'll get there momentarily. Yeah. that Man, that could have been another one of our tough text questions there. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's right. Also, verse 9 can be, because this is another one of those very dense subjects here where Paul talks about in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Alex, talk to us a minute about what does Paul mean that in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form? I just want to point out some of the tricky things in this verse, just even in its in its language, right? Fullness there is pleroma. It means that which fills up, uh, full of something. And we did talk about this a lot last time with Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, and Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, verse 23, chapter 3, verse 19, chapter 4, verse 13. You have the uh, church being called the fullness of, of Christ, his body. So... There's fullness, right? There's pleroma. That's a whole thing. Then you have this other word, deity, deity. And the Greek is theotes, and it means divinity. It means divine character, divine nature. And it's only used one time in the New Testament. So that makes it a little trickier. And then we have this other word in bodily form. It's somatikos. And it it just means what it says. It means bodily, corporally. But again, this is the only used one time in the New Testament. So you have a couple unique words here. You have this concept of the pleroma. Uh, you have how that's being reinterpreted as what's the pleroma in the uh, pre-Gnostic or Jewish mystic or Gnostic context. So this is a difficult verse. I think calling it the tough text would be appropriate. So here's my take. Again, 
just like last week in chapter 1, verse 19, I'm going to call the fullness here the church. Now, this is similar in my mind to what's going on in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, that says that by his promises, we will become partakers of the divine nature. It's not uh, theotes, but um, it's a similar concept. So in Christ, we have our three things here. Remember this. We have our one, salvation, which is forgiveness of sins. We have our two, transformation, which is the gradual change into Christ-likeness. That's our walk by faith. That's our becoming mature. And then three, we have our glorification. This is the hope of glory. This is the redeeming of our bodies in the resurrection. It will be our divine-like bodies. We're not going to be Yahweh's, but we're going to be divine-like. So this last part, our glorification, our theosis, our divinization, this is what Paul is angling for here, in my view. Christ is the creator, yes. Even the visible Yahweh, yes. The embodied Logos, yes. But in Christ alone, one begins to share also in the divine nature. Again, we don't become Yahweh's, but we become a part of this divine nature. For the divine nature dwells in him, and we as the church, the fullness, dwell in him. But we dwell in him in bodily form. So this is part of how the wisdom of God is made known to the spiritual rulers and authorities through the church. We've been and are being exalted in the heavenly realms. So he has been made head over all rule and authority. Therefore, we as his body share in that rule now and in the age to come. So what does Paul mean? Let's go back to the beginning. What does Paul mean that in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form? I think it's talking about the fullness of the church dwelling in Christ, sharing in his divine nature uh, in bodily form now and in, in the resurrection to come when we get that new body. What do you think, Nick? I think you're on the right track for verse 10. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to just make a little shift here in verse 9. I, I, what I see here with Paul saying the fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ is he's speaking, he means that Jesus is 100% fully God, completely God. All that God is, Christ is also. Um, granted, uh, there is some difficulty in understanding, not only in the original language, but also in English, um, uh, exactly what Paul is saying here. Um, but um, I, I believe we're dealing with the God-man, and theologians smarter than us have struggled to fully grasp that metaphysical reality of Jesus being 100% fully God, so the whole fullness of deity, and 100% fully man dwells bodily. Um, and you can just you can read creedal statements that have been put out over the centuries just to get a flavor of how difficult it is to express this reality in human language. It's, it's tough. Yeah, it is. What does it mean for them? What does it mean for us? Um, I think it means the same thing for them as it means for us. Jesus is not one of many gods or a godlike being. He is completely God. He brooks no rival. And he is greater than any other god, any other being, any other emanations or elemental spirits or what have you that can be conceived, whether real or imaginary. Um, Christ is greater than all those because the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Right. 
And you know, Nick, I think there's a common ground between what you said and what I said, and that is um, if Christ is distinct from all other created beings, then we're not going to find uh, anything more um, in those other created beings than what we already have in Christ who is distinct from creation. Right. Um, So let's talk about verse 10. You've been filled in him, uh, or I believe yours says made complete in him. Right, right. Uh, Let's talk about how are we made complete? How are we uh, filled in Christ? Okay. Well, made complete is one word. In the Greek, it's plurao. And it means to fill or to be full or to fill up, to complete, to finish. And you may notice a similarity there between plurao and what's called the fullness in the previous verse, the pleroma. Um, We are his fullness. And so I think verse 9 and 10 are connected in that sense. And so therefore the divine nature dwells within us. It was through Christ, uh, not some vision or angelic contact, but through Christ, not some list of works that put the body under harsh treatment or asceticism it was through christ (laughs) through which we have the divine nature dwelling within us in which we have the hope of glory to get our new divine bodies in the resurrection that's my take on this what do you think nick amen and amen um the uh i just snuck a glance real quick this is a what's called a uh, perfect passive participle Um, all that means is uh, since it was perfect tense, this filling took place at some point in the past, and we stand full now. We we were filled, and now we still are filled. Um, passive in that it's Christ who does the filling. Mm-hmm. We don't fill ourselves up, which seems to be what the religious leaders of the day were trying to do with all the don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, all their various regulations and asceticisms was trying to fill themselves up. Paul's saying, look, you, you're you already full as Christians. We are, as you said, Alex, partakers of the divine nature. Now, that's a callback to Second Peter 1 and verse 4. We have received his fullness, grace upon grace, John 1 and verse 16. Yes. We are full of his fullness, and thereby we are um, made sharers in him. So um, another swipe. He just keeps doing this as we go along here. Very good. Let's talk about a very important thing, verses 11 and 12. Paul's going to talk about baptism, and also he's going to talk about circumcision, uh, specifically a circumcision made without hands, the circumcision of Christ. Um, Alex, what's Paul doing here? Is he... Is he uh, essentially making baptism equivalent with Old Testament circumcision? Uh, that would be no. That would be a no. All right. So here we go. Um, I could see how people would get there. But first we have to remember that not every metaphor is meant to be some type of uh, type or archetype or some type of uh, shadow f- substance theology between Old Testament and New Testament. Paul is, let's step back here, Paul's battling some sort of Jewish group here. That's been established. And he's using their own language and their own appeal to circumcise the Gentiles as the basis for the Gentiles um, to be, you know, a true true Christian. And Paul is saying, no, no, the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised because uh, what has been cut away already in Christ 
is our sin, and God worked that out in our baptism. If you want the shadow fulfillment or type archetype of Old Testament circumcision, then look at Romans chapter 4, verse 11, where it says Paul, uh, Paul says that Abraham's circumcision was called a seal. It was a seal. And you just have to ask yourself, well, if the Old Testament circumcision was a seal, uh, does the Christian have a seal? The answer is yes. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14 says that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit as a pledge of our inheritance. And I think our inheritance is our resurrection body. So just as the Israelite would have been born into covenant, and then the male would carry the seal of circumcision in his flesh eight days later, so too the Christian is born into covenant at baptism, and then sealed afterwards as the sign of our covenant and pledge of our inheritance. So if you want to write out an equation here, Old Testament birth equals New Testament baptism. There's your type archetype. And Old Testament circumcision equals your New Testament Holy Spirit. There's your type archetype. So it's important to remember this because um, making the Old Testament circumcision equal to the New Testament baptism is actually the best argument all denominational churches can make against the Catholic Church and against the Church of Christ position on baptismal regeneration. That's why they'll say baptism isn't for the forgiveness of sins. It's a sign that you have been forgiven. But uh, pardon my pun, but I don't think that argument will hold water. <laughs> so uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll take the affirmative position here and say yes. So let's start baptizing babies. That's right. <laughs> Psych. <laughs> Seriously, uh, though, um, my read of this, you've made a very compelling case, by the way, um, the one writer called it the unhandmade circumcision. I like that. Um, the circumcision of Christ is connected with baptism. That's, um, I think, a straightforward reading shows that, um, that at least they go together. Um, I see it as akin to uh, the circumcision of the heart that we read about in the Old Testament. Yeah, Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, Deuteronomy mm-hmm. 30, verse 6, Jeremiah 4, verse 4. Um, I'll talk about the circumcision of the heart, um, and I believe elsewhere, Romans 2, Paul even talks about, you know, you're not a Jew externally, you're a Jew internally, um, and he also mentions circumcision of the heart there. And so um, you were right. Very. If we start equating um, baptism and circumcision and all that, you do end up in a place where... Um, uh, you start. You, you can baptize babies. That's one of the key arguments there. Just read the infant baptism article in the Catholic Encyclopedia, and you see that. And I think they appealed this verse, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I don't necessarily equate them. I just say they go together. And sure. just like just like the sure. sealing of the Holy Spirit goes with baptism, you're you, you can't be sealed without being baptized. Right. Um, just like you can't be. You can't have a baby boy circumcised unless he's first birthed. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so there's definitely a connection, but parsing that out becomes a, a serious matter of, of doctrine and how you view baptism. Definitely. Now, something is being cut away, you know, in, in physical circumcision. It's the foreskin of the male. But in the baptism of the, of the Christian, uh, it says something being cut away is the body of the flesh. 
And so what exactly is the body of the flesh, Nick? What, what does that um, phrase mean? You did a good job earlier of talking about the um, how words are not univocal, they're equivocal, um, to borrow Hank Hanegraaff again, and how context determines how words are used. And you pointed that out with the word flesh. That's still true here. Um, and so flesh here, and I believe elsewhere in Paul, um, for example, Romans 8 has a very lengthy discussion about flesh. Right. Um, is not talking about, you know, our skin and blood. It's talking about, I've defined it this way, is, is an anti-God principle or a principle that is opposed to God. So there's a, a metaphor or a figure that's being used here that Paul utilizes flesh to latch onto. Body is, in Paul's writings, um, it tends to be pretty straightforward as the physical body, that is talking about our flesh, blood, heart, all that stuff. So for them to appear together, this is interesting. You know, the body of the flesh, um, taken with the rest of the stuff that Paul writes, Paul seems to be saying something akin to what he says over in Romans chapter 6 about our bodies are the means through which the flesh operates. Um, but through baptism, having been buried with him, right, um, and having experienced the circumcision of Christ, this is cut off. We, are, we no longer offer our bodies to the flesh, but instead we offer our bodies to the Spirit for holiness and righteousness. Uh, so something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. And um, the body of flesh was cut away, Paul says. Right. And so since Paul connects that in verse 13 to the forgiveness of our transgressions, then I take that the cutting away of the body of the flesh, um, that means the forgiveness of our sins. He has cut the sin away from us like a mass of cancer removed by a master surgeon. Now, that mass is removed. Um, can the cancer pop back up again? Well, if it does, we have a uh, continual, uh, you could say, miracle drug working within our body called the blood of Christ. And hmm. it continually washes us and cleanses us from all sin so that there will never be a mass of sin that creates this cancerous body within us that kills us. Uh, it's been removed, and it's continually being put under suppression through the blood of Christ. Unless we stop treatment. That's right. Then, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's bad news. That's right. If you don't walk in the light, uh, then you don't continually have the cleansing. Okay, Nick, verse 14 talks about our death certificate being hostile to us. Now, Christ takes care of that, but how was our death certificate hostile to us? What's in that language, Nick? Yeah, uh, a couple things, a couple ways it could be looked at. It could mean, um, or tied to what Paul will discuss in a few verses, all the asceticism, the severity of the body, um, the distortion of legal codes that results in harsh treatment of the body. I mean, that that's pretty hostile yeah. uh, toward us. Uh, but it could also mean that the law, and are we talking about the law of Moses or some other... The law served as a record book of humanity's sin, and that served as a reminder to people of their own imperfections and flaws, and in that way was hostile toward our minds. So <laughs> body, mind could be both, uh, but uh, that's what I see here. 
what do you think? Well, I I don't see the law of Moses here. Although I'm I'm not advocating for adherence to the law of Moses either. That's been settled in Acts chapter 15. So so take it easy, Hebrew roots people. <laughs> I believe that the certificate of debt is our sin, specifically the transgression of the Gentiles that placed us as Gentiles under the elementary principles of the world at the Tower of Babel. I talked about this in our last podcast. This debt certificate, it keeps us from being transferred to another kingdom in the spirit realm. So the cross of Christ then erases the debt certificate. So Gentiles can now be transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. That's how it was hostile to us. It kept us enslaved. So that's that's my thought. And that, I think, goes along with these rulers and authorities in verse 15. Nick, who are the rulers and authorities? How did the cross disarm them? Yeah, so what's interesting is um, some see here uh, what's called an inclusio, uh, where rulers and authorities here in verse 15 answers to how Christ is head of all rule and authority back in verse 9. Um, And so this whole 9 through 15 kind of goes together as a unit, and Paul's closing that unit out with mention here of rulers and authorities. And I think there's a connection there. these are probably spiritual beings, could be spiritual beings, both good and bad, but here it seems best to understand them as spiritual beings who are hostile toward the kingdom of Christ. Right. Um, so how does the cross come into play? Well, especially in John's gospel, the cross was the enthronement of King Jesus. And so in the cross, he was victorious by his death over Satan and his forces of darkness. And in the cross, he stripped them of their power, and now they're fighting a losing war. They're still fighting, but they're going to lose because Christ has uh, conquered them once and for all in the cross. Uh, Does that make sense? What say you? I think you're right. These are hostile rulers and authorities. Uh, They are bleeding out, and so they know their time is short. There's even the connection. I like your connection in verse 9. There's another connection in chapter 1, too, about these created beings, the thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. So, again, in my view, um, these rulers and authorities were over the nations. So when Christ uh, disarmed them, it was by the erasing of the Gentiles' certificate of debt. And that was erased through the payment accepted by God at the cross. And I think that's why, uh, again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, had the rulers and authorities known that that's what was going to happen ahead of time, they would not have crucified Jesus. Let's go on to verses 16 and 17 here. Um, Verse 16 begins, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you. It's interesting. It implies... Apparently, people were judging them. So, Alex, talk to us. Are, are the are the folks here who are participating and abstaining from certain activities are they being judged? Yes, in fact, um, to say they're being judged for participating in all of these things or abstaining from all of these things—that's a kind of a trick question because the verse shouldn't be parsed through wholesale participation or wholesale uh, abstaining. 
this is a you know a note to our Seventh Day Adventist friends or Hebrew Roots friends, um, because they will say that this passage is about uh, being judged for participating in these things, and therefore you should participate and keep the Sabbath and the festivals and on and on. So this verse should be parsed through how the group of people that Paul has in mind would use those things to issue judgment against the Christians at Colossae. So let's just take it piece by piece. How would um, eating and drinking become something that the uh, enemies of Paul here would then judge the Christians for at Colossae? And I would say uh, if it's in participating, this might go with what Paul says in verse 21, where they say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Um, Gentile converts eating unclean meats, perhaps they would be targets for judgment by these Jews who say you got to keep all the law of Moses. Uh, it could also be Jewish mystics, though, on the other hand, trying to enforce some type of lengthy fast. You know, um, there are records that show, you know, they would fast for 40 days in order to prepare themselves for receiving visions and uh, existential experiences. There's no pleasing these folks. I think that's kind of the, the common theme here. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19? He was like, look at you people. John came not eating and drinking, John the Baptist, um, and they say he has a demon. But here I am, the son of man, I come eating and drinking, and you say that he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And I think that's the point. There's just no pleasing these guys. Their end game is to be in power, to be authoritative, uh, to be in charge. And so it's all a big manipulation. What about these festivals, these new moons, these Sabbath days? Um, if the Gentile Christian was not doing those things, uh, that perhaps would make them targets again for judgment by the Jews who say they should do those things. They should keep the law of Moses. Now, again, the council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 saw to these things not being necessary for the Gentile. Um, and there was four things necessary, the eating of things sacrificed to idols, um, drinking of blood, uh, sexual morality. Um, I forget what the other one was, but it's in the context of idolatry. Now, historically speaking, even if they wanted to keep the festivals, even if they wanted to um, celebrate that, a lot of those festivals couldn't be kept without the temple. So AD 70, the temple gets destroyed God's judgment comes upon Jerusalem, you can't keep the law of Moses without the temple. And thus, rabbis scrambled to piece together Judaism after AD 70, and that's when you have the rise of rabbinic Judaism. Now, here's the thing, you know, you take a step back, and at the end it says, these things, they're a shadow of what is to come. That was surprising, Nick, because that's future tense. I would I would have thought he would have said these are shadows of what has come. But this shows that there are still some f further realizations of what we have in Christ to be experienced later. So in my study of um, holidays in the Christian religion, like the development of holidays in Christian religion, the earliest festivals in church history that were celebrated were Passover, we call it e Easter, and Pentecost. So those two. Uh, but they were recontextualized, Nick. They were recontextualized as being realized through Christ and his church. And so it wasn't just about um, Exodus anymore. It was about the new Exodus that we have in Christ and his church. Uh, 
So Easter, Passover, culminating in the resurrection of Christ Jesus, Pentecost, the day in which the church was established and the offering of the first fruits was made. The only festival that um, doesn't seem to have a fulfillment yet in Christian theology is the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the most important festival in the Jewish in the uh, Jewish religion, and that might be because um, that is the Christian eschatological hope that in the resurrection we will get our new tabernacle, and that's when we will dwell with God in our new tabernacle. So all of this, there's, there's a lot of depth to it, a lot going on here, uh, but I tried to summarize it as best I could. What do you think, Nick? Well, you've pretty well upholstered the subject there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Nick, um, verse 18 and 20 then, what does it mean by... Um, our prize, and how would someone disqualify us from that prize? Yeah, let no one disqualify you, begins verse 18. Um, and again, um, the way I've been reading chapter 2 here is with that little equation of Christ plus anything else equals too much. So adding to Christ um, anything would disqualify a Christian. What's the prize? Well, uh, it could be uh, their commitment to Christ. Eh. Or it could be their spiritual rewards, both now and in eternity. And I like that better uh, in terms of what they would be disqualified from. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, I like the spiritual reward option you gave there. I think it goes with chapter 1, verse 12, where it says, The Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And thus, chapter 2, verse 18, is the other side of that. Don't let anyone disqualify you then for your prize which if it's the same thing in mind, then the prize would be our inheritance, uh, the resurrection body. You could say that maybe the Jewish mystic uh, might be trying to sell them on an alternative method of sharing in the divine nature. And maybe this is why Paul is saying that this, this not only will not work, but it will disqualify you for the true sharing of the divine nature in Christ. Um, this may be summed up in the idea of true theosis versus fake theosis. And that's really relevant for today, Nick, because I tell you, the more I learn of other like New Age philosophy movements that are going on, which is really just old age uh, pagan idolatry, <laughs> um, there is that concept, too, of being raised up into divinehood, God-likeness. But that's a fake theosis. That's eating the knowledge of good and uh, uh, of good and evil in the garden again, falling for mm. another trap set by Satan. The same trap. There's a fake theosis and there's a true theosis, and the true theosis is for those who stay in Christ and steadfast in the hope set for them in the gospel. Any thoughts, Nick? No, that's that's right on the money, and I think you're right on with the the contemporary application of that. Well, what are the uh, then the elementary principles again? Uh, second time is used this word. What are they? The elementary principles of the world, and how did we die to them? This is in verse twenty. Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, all our comments from two eighteen uh, two verse eight are, are applicable here. These are the bad guys. All right. Um, these are the evil spirits, and what they inspire is not truth but heresy. That's right. They inspire the doctrine of demons. And if I had to put a place in time in which we died to those beings, uh, it would be in baptism. We died to them in baptism. We were buried with Christ. We were 
raised with Christ in the heavenly realms. So what are the things then, Nick, in chapter 2, verse 22, that are destined to perish? He says, don't touch, don't don't uh, taste, don't handle. He says, almost as a parenthetical statement, these things are destined to perish with use. Can you explain that, Nick? Yeah, so um, all of these regulations, all of the ascetic practices, uh, which are focused on uh, the here and the now, uh, and therefore perish with the here and now. I think that's kind of what Paul's going for here. They're, yes. they're focused on earth. And in fact, this sets up what he's going to talk about in 3 verse 2 about um, don't set your mind on things on the earth. Um, but uh, uh, these things specifically, they are focused on earth. They're not focused on the above. And so they're going to perish with the earth. I think that's well said. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of a nice play on words that Paul's doing there. We have a double meaning, the yeah. The things they're abstaining from, they're going to perish, but abstaining from them isn't going to stop them from perishing. That's right. So we've come just about to the end of the chapter here, the final couple verses. Um, Paul talks about how these um, are uh, human precepts and teachings. They are self-made religion. Um, so if these things are connected to the law of Moses then why are they called of men and self-made? Well, Nick, I think it's because the Jewish leaders, they took the law of Moses way further than what it was delivered. You see this in Mark chapter 7, where Jesus rebukes them for teaching the traditions and commandments of men as the law of God, when indeed it is not. And he gives them examples of this happening the example of corbin saying you're not gonna take care of your mother and father because uh, what you have is given to god it's corbin well that's not in the law of moses law of moses says honor your mother and father and so by keeping the tradition of men you were breaking the law of god uh the parable of the old cloth uh and the new cloth the old wine and the new wine in luke chapter 5 verse 33 especially uh, I think the, the old wine, the old cloth, th- that's the law of Moses. It was good as is, and when they put a new cloth together with it, unshrunk, or when they put new wine in an old wineskin, uh, what does it do? It, it creates a disaster. It rips it apart. It spills everything. And so that's exactly what happened in first century Judaism. They had the law of Moses, and they had completely disrupted, distorted, and damaged the law of Moses by putting their traditions and commandments that were self-made of men above the law of Moses, not being content with what the law already said. What do you think, Nick? No, I think that's exactly right. Um, The religious leaders were experts at inventing rules and regulations and codes and their own commandments. And so uh, I do want to say, though, that I think I think these regulations started out with good intentions, you know, trying to answer, how do I honor the Sabbath and, and keep it holy? You know, how, how far can I walk? How much can I work on the Sabbath without breaking it? And I think that that's a good question. But over time, these just became oppressive burdens that even the religious leaders wouldn't lift, but they were happy to put them on the backs of the common folk. So. That's right. Or just, 
you know, what if somebody has evil intentions? What if they're a skilled manipulator? Then they can easily use that situation to put under put other people under their thumb. Yeah. Well, Nick, verse 23, we have this strange phrase, this severe treatment of the body. Uh, mm-hmm. What is that? What exactly would be, uh, you know, severe treatment of the body? So uh, there's the pretty straightforward stuff, right? Um, you can think of self-flagellation, usually with a whip that was made of leather or uh, a thigh strap with sharp bits that get pressed into the leg. Um, there's a scene from the movie, The Da Vinci Code, where uh, Vision, I mean, Paul Bettany, um, he has a scene, he plays a monk, and he does some of this stuff, and it's pretty awful. Um, and then there's the not-so-obvious stuff, uh, the stuff that's kind of foreign to us. And I think of phrases like that enigmatic phrase you read in Paul sometimes of the removing of the marks of circumcision. Oh, boy. Ooh, yikes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I won't go into detail, but uh, I did run across an article in Biblical Archaeology, I think, several years ago, that did go into detail, and it's um, it's awful. Anyway. You know, some of that self-flagellation um, activity is even present within worship to other gods. You think of all the priests of Baal, at the showdown between Elijah and uh, the priest of Baal at Mount Carmel, what were they doing to invoke the presence of Baal? They were spilling their life force. They were shedding and gashing. It says they were raking their chests, just pouring out their own flesh and blood. Again, uh, alternative paths to spiritual experience, connection, and power that are evil. They're no good. You, yeah, you can even get some of this today where, um, like in Catholicism, there's in some places they will crawl on their hands and knees for miles in order to try and engage in severity of the body for Christ, or at least that's what they're claiming. Um, uh, it's all around bad stuff, right? That's... <laughs> Uh, I appreciate the gesture of showing that kind of devotion, but that's not what Christ asked for um, at any rate. And it's, um, it's, not, it's not coherent with the sacrifice of Christ because uh, exactly. you don't have to spill your life force to be right with God. That's what Christ did for us on our behalf. He spilled his life force, and his life force was more than sufficient to cleanse you and to bring you into... Um, the sons of God to make you a child of God. Nick, last verse. Paul says these things, they don't even help anyway. They don't help with yeah. fleshly indulgence. So so why even do it? It's not, it's not going to get you anywhere. And that sort of begs the question, well, why don't they help? Why don't these things help with fleshly indulgence, Nick? A couple ways of looking at this. One, um, there's some who read this and, and they interpret it as that these harsh things don't satisfy the flesh, that only Christ can satisfy the flesh. Eh, um, the flesh isn't to be gratified or satisfied. The flesh is to be put to death. Um, that's here in Colossians 2. It's really strong in Romans uh, chapter 8. So... Um, that's the problem with that first explanation. It's out there, but uh, I don't think it's accurate. The second, which is better, is that these measures, they don't really curb the appetites. 
they deal with the external, but you still have the internal that's the problem. You need a new circumcised heart with the body of flesh cut off. That's what's needed, not this external stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, As you alluded to earlier, this will continue in chapter 3. So even though we'll do chapter 3 next time, the thought continues. It builds on top of itself. And um, I think that's what Paul has in mind when he says in chapter 3, verse 2, set your mind on things above. If you set your mind on things above... That is what can change you. I think it's akin to the uh, transformation of mind in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. That comes through the wisdom and knowledge of Christ. And again, I think that's where Paul's angling. Well, Nick, any thoughts to wrap up chapter two? We did the finish. We did a lot. We did the rest of chapter one and all of chapter two. What do you (laughs) What do you think? Um, Yeah, the. I mean, if, if, if it hasn't come across in what we've been saying, I just want to reiterate again, Christ is supreme. That's that's Paul's—that's been his point in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and there is no one or nothing like Christ um, in all the world or in all of history. Uh, he brooks no rival. There's, there's no one who even comes close. He is— um, he in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is uh, all the things we talked about in chapter 1. and all, So therefore, he is the only one we need for our salvation. We Salvation is found in no other name except for Jesus. He is uh, the only one who can do what we cannot do for ourselves, and that's save ourselves. So he can save us. I'll say amen to that and um, tack on there as well it's just if if you find yourself um being drawn to some alternative form of spiritual enlightenment then just remember that christ is already seated in the highest place and um he's at the right hand of god and you are there with him if you're in christ there is no other spiritual path of enlightenment that is equal or let alone superior to what has already been revealed and given to those who are in Christ Jesus. So alternative paths to spiritual enlightenment are a trap of the devil. It's the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. And it is to be um, vigilantly watched out for because I think those kinds of traps are making their way back into our culture and into our uh, into the realm of battling against our churches. So let's not let that in. And I think that'll wrap it up for Colossians chapter two. Sure will. Um, do want to invite those who are listening to us. You can find this podcast in the uh, Google Play Music Store. I think I said that right, and also the iTunes uh, Podcast uh, Store. You can find us in both of those locations. Just search Swordplay and uh, subscribe to the podcast. Leave a review. Help us get the word out about this podcast. That's right. Le- leave us a question if you have any thoughts at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Next time we will uh, go through Colossians chapter 3, and then after that Colossians chapter 4, do an overview and a wrap-up. And then we'll be done with Colossians, and Nick, um, that'll probably be around the time that our uh, 
third baby has arrived. So there might be a little swordplay break in the future. But we'll f- paternity leave. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, but we'll we'll finish Colossians for you and uh, get you something to listen to while I uh, don't sleep for the next six months. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again for tuning into another episode of Swordplay. Thank you.